Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and our producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy studio today. And today we have Dr. Daniel Bonmiller on. He is a OBGYN doctor in Tri-Cities at Columbia Shores OBGYN, and you do not want to miss this episode. We were just talking before the show about COVID. COVID and the pregnancy vac- COVID and pregnancy. Should you get the vaccine if you are pregnant? Dr. Don Von Miller has a lot of experience with that, and he will discuss his his opinions on that. Uh, many other topics too: uh, testosterone for women, and does estrogen cause breast cancer? So you do not want to miss this show. Stay tuned until the very end, so you can uh, hear Dr. Von Miller speak on these subjects. So, um, Dr. Von Miller, welcome to our show. Thank you. Yeah. So you're at Columbia Shores OBGYN in Richland. Tell me the history of, of how you started that. And, and I know you didn't start out in Tri-City. So tell me a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, I went to school in California, trained in New York. I'm getting my way back to the Northwest I'm from Montana. And then I practiced in Montana for a while and moved to Tri-Cities. Started a practice here uh, in 2007. I've just sort of been in this practice since then and kind of working with doing mostly obstetrics and gynecology. And then recently we added a women's sexual health, which includes hormones and uh, sexual function. All right. So tell us a little bit about the the women's sexual health and um, hormone part of it. Tell us a little bit about what that, what, what women should expect from that. What I did was because it's practicing came up to a lot of issues that it's like, there wasn't a lot of resources or answers out there. And so it kind of decided, okay, we need to move out and, find resources for this because a lot of women have uh, sexual dysfunction. If you look at the population, especially when you're looking at perimenopause or menopausal women, about 40 to 60% have some sort of sexual dysfunction. And we look at it like, oh, that's normal. But it kind of got frustrating because a lot of women like, what can I do? I don't want this to be my normal for the rest of life. And so started looking and there wasn't a lot of resources around. And the resources you do find tend to over-treat or, you know, not treat from a good science-based or medical-based perspective, like I reached out to uh, groups to say, okay, what can we do to help these women? And there's uh, one of the groups that uh, one did a fellowship in what's called uh, International Society of Sexual Health of Women, a study of sexual health of women. Uh, and they're, they're based out of Minnesota. But uh, so we did, I completed that just so that way I could kind of, and they're a great group because rather than kind of just sit winging it and throwing things out there, it's like saying, okay, this stuff we know and we have good science and data behind to say, yeah, we're actually helping women. And a lot of it kind of even pushes the threshold with uh, the FDA or the CDC, things like that, that you say, okay, we got to follow this. But they're like, no, we got to look at the real data. So I, I enjoyed being part of that. And then there's also what's called the North American Menopausal Society. And that's a group that basically focuses on hormones for women. And it, it's really saying, okay, even though the FDA doesn't approve testosterone for women, they have a big push for it because of you the balance with that with estrogen. So it's kind of enjoyable because it's a little more challenging. And it, it, you, you just don't like see somebody say, oh, we got a card blanket for everybody like this. You got to kind of tailor it for your state and enjoy it. So explain, when you say women's sexual health, what are some symptoms that you would see if women are having sexual dysfunction? Uh, well, the most, one, well, the most common ones are going to be uh, sexual desire. Uh, so a big thing that is that 
with women, a lot of times they feel like, well, I just have no desire because I'm busy. I have kids. I have a job. I got a lot of stress in my life, which is definitely contributing parts. But a bigger, there's a part of it, too, that's actually a medical and a very treatable thing. And we have, fortunately, more options than we did even five, ten years ago. Um, other big thing would be pain during sexual intercourse or just uh, discomfort, pelvic pain, issues like that, that, are, that we use a lot of physical therapy. We use some medications. We use hormones. Uh, and just simple things to kind of help transition women to a healthy sexual life, which a lot of it ties in. The thing that's kind of exciting is that it really kind of makes you really work your brain when it comes to medicine because then you're looking at, is it just sexual function? No, it, it entails both like, you know, obviously a general urinary system and then you got your cardiology system, you got diabetes, you, you have a whole health and you have to remember, think about that because that all plays a role in it. So some way to have an optimal sexual life really has to have optimal health. Correct. So Janet, do you have any specific questions about sexual health for women? In our practice, we've heard some really wild um, recommendations. And so I, I, I feel like sometimes we've been uh, shortchanged a little. I've had some clients express that their provider said, well, if you're having discomfort during sex at your age while you're going through menopause, um, let me prescribe some lidocaine for you. So do you use that type of treatment or how would you approach that situation with a menopausal woman? I mean, really the first step is, okay, okay, what, what's the discomfort they're having? And then look at it from both, not just, uh, just talk to them, say, oh, you have pain, let's just treat the symptom. We look at physically, obviously, on exam, see, okay, what's going on? Menopause symptoms cause a lot of changes in the skin, especially in the vulva, decrease in estrogen and testosterone, huge impact on that. The other thing we looked at is, okay, psychologically, what kind of stresses, traumas have they gone through? And then you look at and do a detailed exam will tell you a lot or just getting a good history from saying, okay, what's going on? Because not everybody's the same. And then if you just say, hey, let's just cut up the pain, well, are we really getting to what's causing it and are we really helping the woman? Well, you mentioned about testosterone for women. So how does that mm -hmm. affect sexual health and affect the local symptoms that you might be talking about? When you look at um, traditional like method of treating somebody with, you know, pain intercourse besides say pain medicines, the other thing a lot of times used is just straightforward topical estrogen, which is good. But the thing is, is that it needs to be balanced with testosterone, especially in uh, you know, the vaginal area called the vestibule. That's the area where you have predominantly most painful intercourse, and that's where you have a lot of pain receptors. Well, if you just give estrogen without testosterone, that area is very testosterone dependent. And so we need to basically um, complement the estrogen with testosterone. And usually testosterone is a 10 to 1 ratio of estrogen. So when you're thinking about it, you're like, oh, wait, you know, why aren't we using this? Well, the thing is that one problem is that most, most doctors, most medical practitioners aren't taught that because, and we don't understand that. I mean, I didn't understand that until I delved into this more. Uh, number two is that the FDA doesn't like to prove testosterone. Don't ask me why, you know, but in women, they don't like testosterone. And so a lot of people that get shy away from stuff that it doesn't have like the FDA stamp of approval, even though we use a lot of stuff, what we call off-label, and which is unfortunate for women because when you use testosterone there appropriately, not overdoing it, you use it appropriately with estrogen, 
it makes a huge difference. I agree 100%. I can tell you with our patients, um, um, testosterone, you know, like for atrophic vaginitis or vaginal atrophy, just the breakdown of that tissue, I don't think there is a better drug than testosterone to help for atrophy. I think, like you say, estrogen is great, um, but testosterone is even better. I think they work great together, just like you said. Well, and just the basic science of it, when you, when the body has testosterone, a good amount of that gets converted to estrogen. And if you if you look at take into like a broader role with our breast cancer patients, we actually will block the conversion of testosterone to estrogen just to estrogen. I mean, just to create an estrogen-dependent breast cancer. Correct. Right. We give them we give them certain drugs to block that. That's that's for sure. So speaking of testosterone, what about the misuse of testosterone? You know, it, you say testosterone is important for women. What about the misuse of testosterone for women? I get questions all the time. Am I going to get big muscles? Am I going to grow a beard? Am I going to get a deep voice? Um, so how do you address that with, with your patients? Well, I mean, obviously you may because if you, if you overly or inappropriately tr treat them with that, and which is kind of a concern because when you look at it, it's not pushing for any kind of regulation, but when you look at testosterone, people are inappropriately prescribing it and not really well patient. If testosterone's great medicine, I mean, and it, it's when I when I talk to patients, I say, okay, you have your estrogen, which is basically the symptoms you may notice the most are going to be hot flashes or you're sleeping well because you're getting your temperature changes in your brain. So in the morning, you're going to just feel like you have brain fog, just like you haven't slept well. And you just feel like you're hungover. Uh, estrogen's great for helping that. Testosterone's going to give you more of the vigor, more of the muscle energy, more just feel like you have good strength. And so that's kind of the differentiating as far as what women will tell you they feel. But so the, so the problem comes in is that when you give testosterone, somebody starts to feel better. They start to have more energy, more strength. They feel like they can work out. And their sex drive increases because testosterone helps with that. The problem is, is that if you give them too much, they're going to feel great. Problem is, over that you won't notice the negative effects for a while. And so, if you're continually having too high of dose, then you worry about problems with your, you know, uh, as far as your muscles, with your heart, with your uh, your lipids, um, and other issues too. So that's where it's important is like to work with like with uh, you know you guys or and then with the lab and saying okay. What things can we do to maintain and make sure this is there, right? And what has to happen, you have to have, look at their blood work and say, we need a 10 to 1 ratio of this and estrogen, and they need to be balanced. We also follow what's called sex hormone binding. Well, and this is what binds testosterone, and you have a little bit that's free. The reason we do that is because I look at like a teeter-totter. If you have too much estrogen, you're going to pull down your testosterone and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Well, if you balance it right, it should be good. If it's not balanced, you're going to get problems from estrogen, you know, their side effects there and testosterone, but if it's balanced right, it should they should be healthy and they should feel, you know, like doing well. It's going to fix everything. But if it's like related to the hormones, it should balance out and they should do well. So speaking of balanced hormones, um, Jana has a question about estrogens. So the okay. fear that I um, hear from our clients, um, especially if they have a family history, is that estrogen is going to cause breast cancer. And so they're afraid to even approach hormones or um, they've been told not to use hormones for the fear of just uh, 
the fact that they're a woman and they're going through menopause and you've reached menopause, now you don't need hormones anymore. So could you address those issues? So uh, estrogen got a bad rap. And if you look at estrogen, estrogen is a good medication across the board. Now, is there times that you should not use it? Absolutely. But when we look at it, most of the negative um, results came from the 2002 Women's Health Initiative where they, they did a big study and they used a medication called Permanent Provera, which basically is conjugated horse urine for estrogen. estrogen. But and, and that kind of got a wrap, like, oh, what is that? And same with the progesterone. Now, is there better ones? Yes, I think there are. But the point is, is that at 2002, they stopped the study. But if you look at the study, there's two big factors that really, they said, oh, we don't want to cause harm. And they were concerned about breast cancer risk increase and also heart attack, uh, heart disease, mainly heart attack risk. Well, first of all, we'll take the heart attack. Most of those women are approximately 15 years older than menopausal age, which means all of us are going to have some sort of heart disease. And they were given an oral estrogen. The problem with that is two factors. They already have heart disease, so you give an oral estrogen. Estrogen, if you take it orally, it goes through your liver. Your liver makes proteins that make your blood clot better. And what that does is that you get more clots. Well, if you already have blood vessels that are blocked off and you clot more, you're going to block off those vessels. So part of the issue there was that it was an oral estrogen and it was given later in life. So, so one of the best things you can do is do a topical and then you don't you bypass the liver and you don't have that problem. And usually you don't start somebody on it that's been off hormones for that long of a duration, then start them back on it. The second factor was with breast cancer, which a lot of women are more concerned about because that's kind of more highlighted. Breast cancer in that study alone was never shown to increase. Um, I mean, estrogen was never shown to increase statistical breast cancer. It never made it past the threshold. And then when they went back to the studies, that study reviewed that study, and then they did like the nurse's health study and multiple other ones. None of the studies ever showed increase in breast cancer, even in patients that have a family history. Now, if somebody does not create breast cancer, now somebody gets breast cancer, are we going to keep giving estrogen? No. If it's estrogen dependent, we don't want to feed the breast cancer, but it does not create it. That's the difference. And, and then if you, if you tear those studies down more, women that didn't have uteruses that don't need progesterone, estrogen had a tendency to even look like it may decrease breast cancer risk. Well, uh, and I think, that, yeah. No, that helps a lot. Thank you for that. And I just, I just want to add something to that. Is um, I think one of the biggest misnomers when it comes to hormone replacement is that we, we lump progesterone in the same category as medroxyprogesterone acetate. And if you look at the WHI study in two thousand two, that one arm that had conjugated equine estrogen, Premarin, and MPA, medroxyprogesterone acetate, um, you know, you look at the um, side effects of medroxyprogesterone acetate, and it is a synthetic progestin. It is not progesterone, and they are created differently. And when you look at how they work in our bodies, it, they work differently. Um, you know, medroxyprogesterone acetate works somewhat in the uterus, maybe like progesterone, but it doesn't work in the other tissues, like the breast breast tissue. It doesn't work in the brain tissue. It doesn't work in, um, you know, um, the um, 
like in our skin and things like that. So progesterone is very, very important. And it's important that it's progesterone and not synthetic progestins. They are not created equally. And here's what I usually educate patients on when I want to say how different they are. And I'll even talk to some doctors about this. Progesterone, what does it literally mean? Progesterone, support gestation. What is medroxyprogesterone acetate used for? Birth control. So that's how different they are. So we can't just think that the molecules are close and they're gonna, gonna act similarly in the body. And if you look at progesterone, progesterone actually has some anti-clotting effects. Makes a lot of sense because if you look at the reason, you know, a lot of things that estrogen does, progesterone does the opposite of in the body. So I think part of the issue with cardiovascular increased cardiovascular risk from that arm of the study was that they use MPA, medroxyprogesterone acetate, synthetic progestin, and not progesterone. Do you have any comments on that? Well, actually, I'll, I'll kind of veer a little direction off of this, but kind of in the same vein, is I totally agree with that. And the interesting thing is that one thing I don't think most people are aware of, you said medroxyprogesterone used for birth control. A couple of reasons it's used for that. Number one, it's long-acting. Number two, it's more androgenic than natural progesterone. And number three is that medroxyprogesterone is cheap to make. So those are the reasons that they're going to use it. The problem is if, you now let's get back to sexual health. If you look at birth control pills, they're made with ethanol acetyl and they're making with medroxyprogesterone. Some of the newer ones are coming out a little different combination, but the vast majority are made with that. The problem with that is that if you look at a typical woman, now most of them are teens, 20s, 30s, taking pills, those pills put them in tenfold menopausal state. So when you, right. you let's go back to the pain during intercourse, the pain during intercourse, a lot of those patients, when I look at an exam, their vulva, their vaginal area looks the same as somebody that's been in menopause years. And it's like, well, that's the source of pain. And sometimes it's even reverse those effects. On the rest of the body. I'm just saying something that's directly like if you saw the difference, you'd be floored. And so what I'm saying is that sometimes we actually are causing more problems, harm than good. And when I look at and that's that's the thing, that's it. it it's not easy. And, you know, it's like, OK, we need to figure out, OK, how do we help these women from birth control standpoint? Plus, how do we keep them healthy? You know, and part of my philosophy, my theory, I guess you'd say, is that we may be causing a lot of like symptoms such as polycystic ovarian syndrome by messing with hormones. Right. I, I totally agree with that because with our first child, um, when I was pregnant, I had fibroids and I'm sure that was from years of using the birth control pill because after we had our child and we had our second, there was no issue with fibroids. And I think part of that was because of balancing the estrogen with progesterone took away those fibroids. And, um, you know, I think when you keep feeding it with estrogen, um, those problems just get worse. And, you know, a lot of women, not all, but a lot of the women, when they are on the pill, their cycles are very small. There's not much there. So I, I agree with what you're saying. And it isn't just our sexual health, too, um, because we had done a um, just a scan. I, I, what was it? A DEX scan. And I had early signs of... of um, osteoporosis. Yeah, osteoporosis. So, I mean, that was like in my 30s. And that, to me, is scary because, you know, you have 
that that should be the highest point of my bone uh, strength. So um, definitely made some changes there because, you know, a fall in your uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s can be very devastating to your lifestyle. So, um, you know, I didn't want that path to continue as well because, you know, we always think it's just sex hormones, but it's also other parts of our body that are getting the message to do something um, that doesn't happen. And just being imbalanced hormonally with too much estrogen and not enough progesterone really set me up for some problems later in life. Well, and the birth control... Yeah. Okay. And the birth control pills can cause more than just those side effects. I mean, we get calls from, from, you know, providers all the time that somebody's on birth control pills and they're having all these sexual health symptoms and they're having, you know, or depression and many other side effects from birth control pills and they want to balance their hormones. Well, I, I mean, honestly, the, the first, I mean, the first step is really, you got to get them off birth control pills because you really shouldn't be prescribed and try to prescribe something to overcome all the side effects of birth control pills. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, because that, that, I think that's absolutely correct because you cannot correct birth control pills adding something on top of it. I mean, the birth control is pretty potent. And, and if you're going to stay on that, then you're just going to, it's like you're chasing your tail. And it's frustrating because then you, if you try to, even with bleeding, when they get breakthrough bleeding with that and you try to face with hormones, it's just frustrating and it's tough to get them cycling, let alone what's going on in the rest of the body. And one of the interesting things is, is, um, is in sexual health, you're saying the effects of the parts of the body, like depression, stuff like that. They actually did a study on women that were on birth control pills versus the population that wasn't. And they, they realized that in our brains, how we, select out our mates to our partners for life. And when you looked at women that were on birth control pills and when they weren't, they actually selected different partners. And they actually not saying, oh, I'm choosing a riskier partner, but it changed the brain selection mode for how you choose a partner. The interesting thing is then when they discontinued it, they noticed there's an increased risk of a rate of women breaking up with their current partner or divorce rate which I found was interesting because it's showing the dynamics of the, you know, I don't think we give the brain enough credit for what it does, what happens and hormones, how they affect the brain are substantial. I mean, wow, I was just that, using that to kind of look yeah. And when you, no, when you talk about depression, you need a whole new realm. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, we shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, if you think, if you think of what birth control pills do and they suppress sexual function, um, you know, you're definitely going to choose a different partner than um, if you, you know, had vitality, correct? I mean, that just makes sense. You know, evolutionarily speaking, that makes sense. So well, thank you for it that. Makes sense from, yeah, it makes sense from like just a pure pragmatic standpoint, but it actually has an effect on the brain chemistry, which I, I kind of was amazed at. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of in some interesting times right now. Um, so how has COVID affected your um, practice, you know, in your clinic and in the hospital? Well, as far as, I mean, it's kind of to the rest of the population. I think obstetrics is a little unique because it's all, and it has a lot of unique twist to medicine because we're not just taking care of the patient, but then also her uh, unborn baby. Um, 
in a hospital, it's changed as far as the social uh, demographics, as far as we don't have patients' families coming in. So it usually you have the patient and then her husband is allowed to come in or her partner is allowed to come in. Um, and that's all. And then they're testing. So as far as the hospital, people worry, oh, is it worse? Well, it's actually, in my opinion, unless you're on a COVID floor, safer because there's not a lot of people. You're not getting a lot of passage of things going on. So it's actually pretty clean, pretty, you know, regimented. Uh, I don't see like say, oh, geez, don't go into every baby. I think actually it's better and even good surgery. I think people, patients are screened and the population's actually, you know, you don't get a lot of people there. The downside is socially or psychologically, we don't have the family support, which is kind of nice in obstetrics. So that which is kind of uh, before you used to have the whole family. Sometimes it gets a little bit crazy, but but it, it's nice. And, you know, we don't have that except for the 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 mom and then her partner, which in a sense is nice because it gives them a little more bonding time. So when you move it up to the clinic, um, how does it impact the, the clinical side? Yeah, it's increased dramatically stress, anxiety, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes from the stress. So those, those factors have gone up. And then also, too, we're you know, quarantine, so we're sitting at home, so then we're less active. People don't go into labor as easily. You get more post-dates or after your due dates that aren't going into labor, so you get increased rates of being due inductions or C-sections, which is, like, frustrating because, you know, unless you're active, the baby's not engaging, not going into labor naturally. Then the anxiety and stress of the patient with her baby, which is a legitimate concern, is, like, worried about, okay, is this going to affect the baby? And they say it makes us high risk. Well, as far as affecting the baby, the 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 benefit of for the baby is that they're inside the inside the uterus, inside of the uh, what's that in the just the amniotic sac. Well, for to, for something to get to the baby, it has to get through mom to the through the placenta to the baby, and mom first of all has to be exposed. So if mom's not exposed, no worry. Second, if mom gets exposed. There's not a significant number of receptors that will bind to the, the virus that the baby will get affected. So the rate of the baby being affected is extremely low. So it's not something like Zika virus where you're worried about, oh, you're going to have a high rate of anomalies. Uh, or I have any interesting if people worry about that. I have a high number of teachers. Well, the teacher population, yes, you worry about exposure. You don't want to be exposed to any infection. Well, Teachers are exposed to high rate of what's called cytomegalovirus or CMV. Cytomegalovirus is a common cold virus. You've lived with it for a long time. And so being around kids, you have a high rate of that. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, when you're pregnant, you're going to get it. Fortunately, we don't see it that often, but it's a cold virus and it happens. Most of them are exposed. Well, that is, is a higher concern to me than coronavirus for the baby because the baby is actually essentially pretty safe with coronavirus. Um, and then you look at, okay, when the baby's born, can they get affected? Yes. Children and young kids, except for we're starting to learn more about the, you know, the mutation in England, fortunately, it doesn't sound like it's significantly causing more harm, but it seems like it can be passed a little easier, you know, may have a little bit more impact, than, you know, we're not sure on that, but kids essentially are pretty safe, especially kids and kids transmission. Kids usually get it from their parents. But are, do we isolate the kids in the hospital? No, because especially if mom's breastfeeding, the baby's got an from in utero and afterwards. 
So the baby's actually super safe. Um, and the risk is super small. So babies are pretty good. Now the risk comes in because when you have somebody that's pregnant and pregnancy in itself puts you at a higher health risk state. Well, um, the baby, when you're pregnant, even being exposed to any kind of sickness, increase your risk. Um, like, you know, just a general flu or swine flu. So, and that that's the same thing with coronavirus. If you get sick, you worry about getting dehydrated, putting you in increased risk of preterm labor, and those kind of issues. But not like it's saying, oh, this is significant risk. Yeah, it increased your risk because when you have coronavirus, you worry about respiratory problems. Pregnancy, you have increased swelling and airway and stuff. So we treat it essentially the same as if you weren't pregnant. Um, and most of the treatments can be used. You know, some of them are questionable, but that's like anything in pregnancy, especially when we're treating something so new and abruptly. So, but the women do well with it. Um, and, you know, yes, are, are there instances where there's some that are really sick and have a hard time? Absolutely. But that's just like the general population. So now that we have a vaccine, doctor, I, um, as a female, and, and if I was pregnant, I would be really concerned as to what I should do. Um, because I feel as a pharmacist that we're not seeing um, that this vaccine has been studied for very long. Um, it's came out really rapidly. Um, and generally what I felt when I was uh, pregnant is that unless something was proven, I erred always on the caution side of not taking something because I just felt very conservatively that I didn't want to bring something into my body that was foreign and wasn't proven yet. What are your feelings about what a woman should do if she's pregnant and, um, you know, should she take a COVID vaccine? Should she take a flu vaccine? I mean, what are you recommending to your clients today? Well, if you can, I would step back first to say in a general population, like say my gynecology population, when they ask about the COVID vaccine. Um, now with COVID, the downside is, is that we've had to live with it for a short time and it's been pretty abrupt on the population. Um, the concern is that the vaccine, you know, when you use a vaccine, you know, the understanding of it, the vaccine is not a cure. It's basically helping our immunity, immune system to recognize and to fight off an infection. So when we get a vaccine, it's using our body's own natural immune system. Well, from the best that we've understood so far is, you know, okay, if, not, if you've gotten coronavirus, roughly it looks like about 90 days, I'm not sure, but it's kind of like we have 90 days immunity and then it starts to wane. Well, if you do a vaccine, the vaccine's utilizing your body's immune system. To say that it's gonna last longer than that is hard to believe because if your own body can't figure it out from the actual virus being in us, then what's the, the vaccine going to do? So it's like, okay, we don't know how long it's going to last. And from that, I'm just kind of relating it to that. We, have, we don't have any definite studies on that. Second thing is, too, is that when, you know, as far as rates of, you know, if you get infected, 98, 99% of the time, you do well. Well, this vaccine will cover 95% of the time. So are we really covering that? One to two percent that we're worried, worried about not doing well. And should we carte blanche treat everybody with the vaccine? Or, I mean, give everybody the vaccine, and or should we select out the population, do a high risk population, try to prevent it from spreading, and then maybe then figure out okay, at that point, do we then offer it to the general population? That's those are questions to ask 
really consider, do I want to take a vaccine that we don't have a lot of data? Obviously, we don't have more than a year because the virus has only been with us roughly a year now. And so, you know, that's a, that's kind of what we understand of it. And the vaccine has been producing within that time. So we don't have a year, two years, three years, five years down the road, what it's going to do to us. That, that's concerning. But then you carry that into the obstetrical population. And in obstetrics, we're always like trying to relate to what we know in a general population. And then we're also trying to say, okay, even more so, is the risk of the vaccine worth the benefit of preventing and protecting? And in pregnancy, unfortunately, I haven't seen where it says, oh, yeah, there's definitely a benefit over the risk because we don't know the full risk. And if we don't know it for the mom herself, how are we going to relate it to babies? And you'll read, okay, they say, well, the risk of coronavirus is worth the risk of the vaccine. It's like, well, what's risk? Uh, and that, that's what I ask. It, it's like, okay, it, it's a plain, simple question. It's not saying, okay, I mean, if you told me, oh, the risk of the coronavirus, we kind of are getting an idea what's that. But, you know, is my baby going to be born with two heads? You don't, we don't know. Or what's that going to affect a baby later in life? Well, uh, so have you treated any patients of your OB patients that um, had uh, COVID? Uh, so as far as uh, my patient, a fair number that have had COVID in my practice, I've had, fortunately all of them done well, which I'm happy. I have mm -hmm. treated some that were been sick that I cross covered with other docs. I've been in the hospital, been hospitalized. Fortunately, none of my the patients I've treated have not had to go to the ICU. And I've taken care of a fair number of them that have been positive COVID. Um, so, you know, the, the ones that I've seen, and now I've talked to other colleagues, and fortunately most of the pregnant women in the hospital, there hasn't been a significant number that have been extremely sick. There have been That's some, cool. but the vast majority are healthy. Does it seem to those ones that are that are sick? Did it seem that they had under any underlying like diabetes possibly, or were they were they older for being pregnant? You, do you remember any of that? Uh, it, it's kind of it. I mean, obviously the ones that have there's been some that have had diabetes or obese, but to be honest with you, our pregnant populations become more and more high risk. We've seen more rates, higher rates of obesity or diabetes, stuff like that. So for me to actually give a opinion, I couldn't really say because I've seen both sides of it. You know, I've seen ones right. that stayed healthy that are high risk. I've seen ones that are healthy, really sick and vice versa. Good. Thank you for that. That was a lot of good information. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you, Jen, I've been doing this podcast now for over a year and I mean, we learned so much information from from doctors like yourself. So thank you for for being on today. Um, so what about prenatal care? If there was one thing you could tell a a pregnant mom to do for prenatal care, what would that be? I'm, I'm putting <laughs> you it narrow down to one, one thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two things. <laughs> I would say. I mean, there, there's a lot of things. The thing I think is probably the best is thing, things that you can do to decrease your stress and anxiety. You know, I think I think walking or just like, you don't have to be crazy exercise and just some sort of activity usually makes a huge difference in stress, anxiety, high blood pressure, and keeps you healthy and helps you as far as that, and going to labor on your own without needing another alternative means. So 
So I'd say exercise, you know, obviously drinking lots of water and eating healthy because those things, uh, just doing those things, I think makes a huge difference. And I think a lot of things that we end up treating are trying to undo or correct those. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, what, about, what about vitamin supplementation? I know folic acid is important. Can you hit on that a little bit? So, so folic acid is important. And folic acid is most important if you know you want to try to get pregnant. The reason I say that is because by the time you know you're pregnant, the benefit of folic acid is this. When you become pregnant, the major benefit that we know of is what's called the neural tube development and the neural tube closing. Well, that usually occurs by the time you get to six to eight weeks out. But most women don't know they're pregnant until that point. So if you're thinking, you know, there's a potential I might become pregnant or um, I, w- I want to try to get pregnant, usually I say, well, you know, it'd be nice if you could be taking this for a few months before. Uh, folic acid is very important. The, the minimum is 400 micrograms. I like to do 800 micrograms. Now, some people have a deficiency called MTHFR. Um, it's basically the enzyme in our body that converts folic acid and then um, changes it to folate, um, reduces it. Well, folate is basically the active form in our body. Well, if you take, if you don't have the enzyme or you may have one gen, not another, you're not going to make enough. So if you do L-methylfolate, which is basically you're taking a reduced form, so you're kind of bypassing that, is a nice thing. And if you know you have MTHFR, you should take that all your life. Um, but so it's not... It's not bad to take that in, as opposed to taking folic acid. Well, I'm a big believer in just taking, you know, the methylcobalamin and L-methylfolate anyway. It might be a little more expensive in your vitamin supplement, but 57% of the population is, you know, MTHFR deficient. So why not just take that? If you're going to take it in a multivitamin, you should just take it with those in there is what I believe. I agree. Janet, do you have any comments on, on since you've been pregnant? Do you have any comments on that? <laughs> well, yes. I, I guess one of the things that I stress with my ladies that, that talk to me or to younger women is that, you know, being healthy before we have children is extremely important. Um, I think those things are easier to get a hold of prior to becoming pregnant than it is being pregnant and then trying to, well, oh my gosh, I have... Uh, gestational diabetes or have, you know, different things because um, we do have the ability to be healthier during pregnancy. So our outcomes during our pregnancy um, will be better, but also those, those lifestyle things that make us healthier also are going to affect our immune system, our, our bones and how we um, bounce back from pregnancy. Because if you did have to have a C-section, there's another thing that, you know, takes back, uh, takes away from your energy level and all those things. So anything that we can do to be healthy even before we get pregnant is something that I really promote for women because I think we're short-sighted in our culture. We feel like, you know, oh, there's always the vitamin or the pill to snap us back like blood pressure in a moment. But health is over time. And 
I've been seeing on Facebook this choose your hard. You know, it's hard to do this, but it's hard to do that. And, you know, being healthy from the very beginning makes it easier to transition into pregnancy as well as delivering and raising your children. And so I think we owe it to ourselves. And if you're not sure what that is, find find the, the tools to do that because, you know, just taking prenatals after you're pregnant, I, I agree. Sometimes we're missing the whole entire boat of prevention for the child as well as ourselves. So that's my two cents. I think that's really good advice because, it, I mean, so many times people come in and it's like, you're like, okay, what do we, what can we do to kind of help get, keep you healthy when you're already at an unhealthy state? And, it, and it's simple things, like you said, it's, it's not anything crazy. It's just eating healthy and exercising and, and, and People think, oh, I got to go crazy. No, you don't. You just got to, you know, take time out, you know, go for a walk, just do simple things and kind of get into a healthy mode. That'll help you through pregnancy, and that's how it's going to help you uh, after delivery. And that, actually, just one thing came to mind. It's like you're talking about, you know, talking about L-methylfolate. Um, one thing is, too, like depression, anxiety, you know, and pregnancy affects that. And so you'll see it come out in pregnancy. During pregnancy, especially right after delivery, one of the biggest times that's important is after delivery, you have a high a spike as far as postpartum depression and anxiety. Uh, and a lot of women think, oh, that's normal. I'm like, why am I connecting my baby? Well, that is important to be aware of. And if you notice it, to kind of contact your healthcare provider. But the other thing is, too, that's where Elmethafloid has actually shown some benefit to decreasing, you know, depression. Uh, and pregnancy is a perfect time for it because it's not like we're adding something that we're concerned about affecting the baby. It's something that's going to be good for both mom and baby and may help un or help improve her depression to where she doesn't need something. But don't just depend on that. If, if it's significant, if it's starting to affect you, especially when you look at two weeks after delivery, that first two weeks we call postpartum blues, which is common. You shouldn't be having thoughts of hurting yourself, or baby, or things like that. If the blues go past two weeks, that's not normal. You should say, hey, I need, I need help here. What what kind of things can I do? You know, simple things like, you know, vitamins, medications, or counseling is important because if we keep you healthy, then you'll have a better time raising your child. You and your baby will do better, and your whole family relationship will be better. Well, I'm going to interject some of the things that I think helped me the most was realizing there might be a time where, you know, it's not wrong for a new mother to say, I need some help and step away for a moment because that moment in time is just to regather your, your thoughts, your feeling and your, you know, cause you're so attached to that child that when they cry, you want to help them and you want to take care of them. But sometimes we need to take care of ourselves in those moments and just have somebody else step in and help us or even, you know, put your child in a safe place and empty the garbage or something just for five minutes of peace and calm because you know, that anxiety and stress I think happens to all of us after pregnancy, those hormones are, and, and everything in our body is just off the chart. Um, and, and to me, I think sometimes as women, we always help, but we don't ask for help. And it could be just a few moments that you can step away. That that's all you need to get back, you know, into a good state of mind. No, I totally agree. And I think it, our society has kind of gotten to the point where we think, oh, we have to be strong. We have, we have to do this ourselves. But if you look back at human history, most of 
raising, you'd always be around families. Mm-hmm. You're always around, you know, your your siblings. Your, you always have something. Now we're all like islands because, first of all, we're very uh, – we move a lot. And so a lot of us don't even live near family. We, you know, may not even know our neighbors. And so we kind of raise our families in little pods. And so it's basically depend on just, you know, the, the parents. And that puts a lot of strain. And it's like we feel like we have to do it all ourselves, and which is really – Raising a kid, you need you need your support system. You need a support network, like you said, for somebody just to take the kids so you can go go take a bath or take out the garbage. I mean, basic things become overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But when you have family or you have that support network, it's huge. Yeah, that is for sure. So, Dr. Bonmiller, we're winding our show down. Um, I got to ask you, so what fires you up? What drives you? What, what would you have a passion for about what you're doing? Uh, I don't know, in the, in the, the obstetrics end, I don't get to see, I mean, I, I love to watch the development of babies because it's fascinating. I mean, uh, if you can't get fascinated by that, you, you need a life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So true. It is so, so true. When, when they're born, and, 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 uh, and you know, you, when you, I mean, it, their little feet and their little hands and their cheeks, I mean, it, they're just fun. Yeah, And so that, that's exciting. And to keep a mom, you know, try to give them the healthiest pregnancy. And then when a kiddo comes out, just to, you know, them starting a new life and it's getting their life, that's exciting. So, you know, even though obstetrics beats you up because you got to be up all crazy hours, I feel like I'm a new dad permanently because I'm up every hour. <laughs> um, but in, in the end, it, I mean, that, that's what drives me there is just the little kiddos. And then as far as in gynecology, Sexual health, the reason it's it, it kind of like, uh, I guess, I don't know if you call it double-edged sword, but one thing that drives me crazy when people are being treated, and it's like, don't, you know, and, and then they, they come into me, and they're, I'm like, what is this person doing? Because the thing is, is that sexual health is exciting uh, because when you can have a, get a healthy relationship with that woman and her partner, it's huge, and they're so much happier, and it like, changes so much in their life. Just like a newborn kid does sexual health. If you're if somebody's healthy, then they're going to have a healthy sexual life. If they're not healthy, it's tough to have a good sexual life. I mean, things just don't work right. From you know, and, it, our, and the saying in, in my arena is that your brain is your largest sex organ. Those guys will disagree, but it, and that has a huge impact. And to keep your brain healthy involves a lot of things, from just general health, diabetes, heart health, to hormones and stuff like that. And when you see a happy couple, that, that is that's rewarding because you go from them, them feeling like, oh, this is our new standard of life where we aren't intimate. And intimate isn't just sex. I mean, it's intimacy, closeness, things like that. And when you can have that, that that's rewarding. Yes, that is. And that is, it is very rewarding when you, um, you know, balance somebody's hormones. And a lot of times from what we see is we see, uh, you know, women get their hormones balanced and next thing you know, their husband has to get their hormones balanced. And that is very rewarding because, you <laughs> know, Sean gets and, the call. Hey, yeah. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we need to talk. <laughs> yeah. We warn them. We warn them all the time. It's like, Hey, uh, you know, your husband is going to probably need to go in and, and get something done too. So, and it is, it's very rewarding because sexual health is very important in our, in our lives. And like you say, it is part of health. I mean, so healthy brains, yeah. healthy bodies, healthy se- sex, um, sex life. I mean, that is very important. Well, healthy relationships as a whole, because if mom is happy or 
or the wife and the spouse are happy, the home is happy, or the relationships are happy. And, and, you know, I mean, we can just keep expanding, but that, I think that starts with um, just small steps uh, to uh, feel better about life. And so it, this is one, one thing that gets overlooked and, and also maybe mishandled some. So it's great that there's a provider out there that people can go to, to, to address this because sometimes it's very uncomfortable. Um, you know, yeah. who can I talk to about this? With? Well, and I think piggybacking on that too, age, age doesn't matter mm -hmm. also. Um, I know patients in their late eighties, early nineties, and they still have an active sex life and they say they don't want to not have that. And so I do, it is concerning to me when doctors, when some doctors will say, oh, as you age, you just don't want to have sex as much. I think that's a problem because, um, that might not be the case necessarily have to be the case. But I completely agree because in the, if you look at it, women that don't feel like they have desire feel less sexually attractive, less, less healthy. So the impact, and they are more depressed and more anxious. And so really, in order just to give them the feel like, oh, wait, I have a desire. It, it, they love their spouse. They want to have close intimate relationships. But if they don't have the desire, they feel like it. And some, some people use, I mean, part of the studies show, okay, if they don't feel sexy or, you know, attractive, they, that decreases desire. But on the other hand, too, something that's interesting in studies, they show that actually if you don't have desire, you don't feel attractive as well. <laughs> right. And that makes sense. Another the, the part of the treatment is that, yeah, the men, and there are two folds of that, or the, this, the partner, if a lot of times I'll have women come in, they're like, well, my husband... You know, it's like the first couple of visits about her. Next thing you know, I'm answering questions about him and trying to figure out, okay, where do we get you resources? Because a lot of it too is like, you get the woman better. And all of a sudden now she's like, okay, but he needs some help too. <laughs> right. And Absolutely. Like you take painful intercourse. I think, you know, a lot of these women, you know, you first of all say, oh, women feels bad because it hurts and she doesn't want to have sex. A lot of women will have sex when it's painful, but the husband doesn't want to hurt the woman. And that's what the studies right. show. So they'll actually pull back more and feel distant and then start relationship lose that closeness. Right, right, for sure. Uh, well, th thank you for being on today, Dr. Bonnie Miller. That's a lot of great information. Uh, our, our, our listeners and viewers um, got a lot out of that. And um, as always, you can catch us at 1 to 2 p.m. every Monday, streaming live on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. And Wednesday, we are going to have in our midweek podcast, which is normally Thursday, we're going to have James Donovan. He has been doing the carnivore diet for one year now, um, eating exclusively carnivore, and he's going to show us his numbers. And he has lost weight. He's going to show us his other um, blood chemistries and such so we can see how the carnivore diet has affected his his um, lab report. Um, and Monday, do not miss out on Monday's episode, 1 to 2 p.m. We will have Dr. Sen Dr. and Senator Scott Jensen from Minnesota. He's been on our show before. He's been on Fox News multiple times. He's been on Rush Limbaugh's show. He is going to go in depth about the coronavirus vaccine. So you do not want to miss that show next Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. Dr. Bon Miller, thank you so much for your expertise and being on our show today. Yeah. We really appreciate you having on. And you've been listening appreciate to it. Health thank Solutions. You. You're welcome. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Wednesday, 8 to 9 p.m. 8 to 9 a.m. Thank you so much for listening.